the FT. I'm Orzu Deragahi of the Financial Times. I'm here with Zaid Al-Ali. He is a lawyer, a scholar on constitutional issues. He is a former advisor to the United Nations Assistance Mission in Iraq. Zaid has worked on issues of rule of law and drafting of constitutions in Yemen, in Libya, in Tunisia, in Egypt, as well as his home country of Iraq. We've just passed the four-year anniversary of the Egyptian Revolution, which was January 25th. Zaid, one of the things that people wanted, of course, during the course of those Arab Spring uprisings four years ago was freedom, they wanted social justice, but there was also a demand for rule of law, for accountability by government officials. I wonder what you think, how the state of the rule of law in these Arab countries, how it's progressed since the Arab Spring uprisings. Well, the rule of law is something that I focus a lot on because I find that it's uh, one of the main, if not the main issues that people really care about. It's the real bread and butter of uh, people's existence in, in the region. The reason why I say that is because people mainly care about a few things. You know, First of all, the food that's on their table and also whether or not they're going to be treated fairly and equally by the state. And everyone knows, it's not a secret, that across the Arab region people are not treated equally. If you have relatives in government, if you're connected in some way, you're privileged, and if you're not, then you're left out in the cold completely. That's true in my country as it is in all others. And if you're left out in the cold, then it can really mean being left to live your life in a very miserable way. Amongst other things, what that means is that if you're arrested for a crime, then you can easily get lost in the criminal justice system. In all countries throughout the region, there's practically no exception. And getting lost in the judicial system, what that can mean is your relatives may not know where you are, where you're being kept. You may never get to see a lawyer. You may never get charged with a crime. In order to get released from jail, you may have to pay a bribe, etc., etc., even though you've never been charged for a crime. And you may even be arrested for a random reason, just because they're trying to pin something on you that you haven't done. And that's something that's extremely common. Conversely, things like political representation, Islamism, and so on and so forth, which is something that a lot of people focus on, particularly uh, Western analysts, I think that's important, that people are right to focus on that, but to assume that that's the most important issue, I think, is really misplacing people's interest. And so to go back to your question, which is whether or not things have improved, basically there have been practically no reforms in the Arab region, from Morocco all the way to Iraq over the past four years that would improve criminal justice in any meaningful way. So in countries where previously you could be arrested randomly, and tortured, and never charged with a crime, and then brought before a judge without having any idea what it is that you've even been accused of, that would still be the case today. In practically all countries, including even countries like Tunisia, which is supposedly the poster child of the Arab Spring. Even in Tunisia, the police has not really been made to account for its uh, criminal behavior in the past, and things have not generally improved. You can still be raped if you're a woman, and then get charged with indecency. That still happens. This... um grim picture that you're painting about the state of the rule of law on a, on a grassroots level. We've seen it in action. Uh, we've seen the kinds of things that happen to suspects here. What about on that more political level? Have there been more improvements or any improvements in terms of governance, in terms of uh, making leaders and officials accountable? There have been some uh, small improvements in behavior in most countries, but mostly in response not to improved governance systems or accountability mechanisms, but in response to public pressure, so demonstrations, so on and so forth. So in some countries, some long-standing problems in relation to the delivery of particular services have been resolved. 
in the short term, but once again, not because a better system of governance has been set up, but just because they felt that you know the powers that be in those particular countries had decided that they wanted to show that they're improving their standard of behavior. But in the absence of any genuine reforms on governance, accountability mechanisms, those types of improvements are simply not sustainable. There's no template, there's no model anywhere in the world for sustainable improvements in governance behavior without serious accountability mechanisms. And to go back to what I was saying before about the rule of law, there haven't been any major reforms across the region apart from in very, very few instances. For example, in Tunisia there has been not in relation to the security sector, as I mentioned before, but in terms of government now, there's a more serious system of government that's in place now that can be held accountable through various mechanisms, including now an independent but at the same time accountable constitutional court that's being set up at the moment. So there you do have a system that will likely bring, not definitely, but likely bring long-term improvement in governance. But in other countries, it just hasn't happened. In Jordan, it hasn't happened. There isn't any additional improvement in Morocco. In Libya, of course, forget it. In Yemen now, we have a new constitutional draft, but God only knows whether or not it's going to be implemented based on what's been happening now over the past few days in Yemen. So it's a very mixed picture. Has there been any kind of accountability for corrupt people, for people who are accused of corruption? Are there any systems that have been put in place to rein in administrative as well as more high-level corruption in any of these Arab countries right now? So there are international, regional, and national mechanisms relating to corruption. There's an international convention on corruption called the UNCAC, and there's all sorts of other mechanisms in their programs and reform efforts and so on and so forth. There haven't been any real major efforts to reform the systems, even despite all of those various mechanisms. And that applies to just about every country in the region. Some countries now have new anti-corruption bodies, but those have never really functioned very well. The only real mechanism that can bring corruption more or less into control is greater input from the public, through elections, you know, and that needs to be very dynamic, both at the central level and at a local level. So you need a much greater level of decentralization than you see across the region. And another is a much more effective judicial system, the regular court system. And there, once again, you don't really have any of the major reforms that you would have needed. Something very strange about the Arab region is that the court systems tend to be very ineffective across the region, and yet they still enjoy a relatively high level of popularity and legitimacy in the region. If you look at opinion polls, international opinion polls, on uh, public perception of court systems, in Latin America it's very low. Latin Americans have a very low appreciation of their court system. In the Arab region it's actually not so low. It's actually around about 50 to 60 percent. Even though most people's interaction with the court system is very negative. If you do a random selection of people and ask them what they think of judges and courts in just about any Arab country, you'll find it to be very low. And yet despite that, despite their low appreciation, they, the judges get off scot-free. They never really get accused of corruption or mismanagement or incompetence or ineptitude. And therefore, no reform efforts. And that's really something that needs to change over the long run. The judicial structure in the Arab region generally is uh, not effective and also doesn't really understand its proper role. Its proper role isn't to serve people in government, it's to serve the people. And that means defending the rights of people against those people in power, not the other way around. Let's talk for a moment about Egypt. Has yeah. the country managed to make any progress in terms of the rule of law? The reform efforts that have been taking place since 2011 have painted a very mixed picture. The only effort that was made in the constitutional framework to reform the court system was to make the court system more independent than it was previously. So when you grant an institution more independence, you're supposed to find a counterbalancing accountability mechanism 
so that you can rein them in and hold them accountable when things go dreadfully wrong. In this case, they only granted the judicial system more independence without actually having any additional accountability mechanism. And without any reform mechanism, without any type of accountability, there is no way that that will lead to a long-term improvement in the performance of the court system. There's no positive example of that internationally anywhere in the world, and Egypt or any other Arab country won't be an exception in that regard. The Constitution here that was passed in a referendum a year ago, what do you think of that Constitution? Is it an improvement? They say that it's the best Constitution that Egypt has had since the 1860s, since it began becoming a modern state. Would you say as a document that that holds true? Well, it may be the best constitution Egypt has had, and that may be right, I don't know, but it's not the best constitution that it could have had. It could have been a lot better, and you can look at various models that exist across the world and in other parts of the developing world, so in Latin America or in Africa or in Asia, not to compare it to countries in Europe or whatever. There are lots of improvements that have been made in those parts of the world that weren't really replicated here, improvement in governance mechanisms that Egypt could have benefited from, and that simply didn't happen things could have been a lot better. They could have been managed better in terms of the process that was followed to draft the text. It could have been a lot more reconciliatory, but also in terms of the content, um, the way in which the document is presented, its substantive content. is just very similar to the 1971 Constitution, which I always found to be very odd, because when you have a revolutionary situation where people are rising up against a state system that has done a disservice to the whole of society you'd expect there to be a much more serious effort to reform the entire constitutional system. And yet this new constitution looks very similar to the 2012 constitution, which itself was also very similar to the, to the 1971 constitution. How would you describe the process by which the constitution was drawn up and approved? Was it done in a way that gave it uh, legitimacy? What was very odd about the drafting process here is that it started off, I don't know if people really remember the timeline, but after the SCAF deposed Hazim Mubarak, that was in February 2011, the SCAF decided to draft the interim constitution, which would govern the transition process, immediately. They decided to do it within two weeks, right? And the referendum on whether or not the interim constitution should be approved took place in March. So Mubarak is deposed in February, and the referendum on the interim constitution took place in March. Most countries spend months, sometimes even years, to decide how the transition is going to be managed. In Egypt, they decided everything. They tried to decide everything within just one, two, maximum three weeks. That's really unheard of. And I think that Egypt, over the long run, paid the price for that. As soon as the referendum took place, the SCAF started having second thoughts about what was in that document, as soon as it took place. So I don't know if people remember, but what happened is that the referendum took place on the basis of something like 10 amendments to the 1971 constitution. That's what people were voting on. Eventually, 10 days later, after the referendum took place, the SCAF published the new constitutional text, which was actually very different to the amendments that people had just voted on, which clearly shows that they had changed their mind between the date on which the referendum took place and the date on which they published the new text. They changed their mind about what should actually be happening. This rush to set out the time frame was a terrible, shambolic mistake. Over time, what happened during the summer in 2011 is that they decided that they would start negotiating what eventually became known as the super-constitutional principles document. So they started to negotiate a set of fundamental principles that would be the fundamental building blocks for the future Egyptian state, that would be binding on the future constituent assembly that would draft the new constitution. 
so that the drafters of the new constitution wouldn't have completely free reign to draft whatever it is that they wanted, they would have been forced to draft it in accordance with a series of negotiated consensus principles. The problem with that initiative is that it was done outside the context of the interim constitution. It wasn't provided for in the interim constitution. It wasn't there. The military and the military-supported government and the deputy prime minister's office decided to do that on their own initiative without a legal basis for it. If they had included it in the interim constitution, then it would have been legally binding. But it wasn't legally binding because it wasn't in the interim constitution. It wasn't a bad idea. It would have been a very good idea to negotiate a set of consensus-built principles, but it has to be on the basis of an agreed-upon roadmap. The fact that they didn't incorporate it right from the start in the interim constitution was also a mistake that people are still paying the price for today, and I don't feel there's been enough emphasis on those early mistakes in terms of setting out the, the reform process. Let's move on to Tunisia. Tunisia is uh, one of the success stories. It seems like it's earnestly trying, at least, to build a consensus between Islamists and secularists. It has, more so than Egypt, definitely embraced the international help that has been offered at a very high level, at a very senior level. Uh, what has Tunisia done right and what has it done wrong in terms of real fundamental reform? Well, if we want to tie into the sorts of things that we were saying before, one of the first things that Tunisia did right is that it took its time to decide how it was going to structure its reform process. It spent around about a year debating and organizing the reform process itself before actually starting the reform process. So throughout all of 2011, there were a series of debates during that entire year about how everything should be structured, about what type of elections they should have, what the role of the election, the elected body would be, how the new constitution would be approved, setting out a whole series of rules. And that was very important. The other thing is that they benefited from circumstances that other countries didn't benefit from. So being far away from international hotspots, that's also very important. You know, that's something that an individual country can control but can benefit from. Um, not having a strong security state or military structure. So after the uprising, of course, the police were completely delegitimized and, uh, and lost any type of power that they had. And the military had never had any power in Tunisia to speak of. So they were never an active political force in the country never in the past, and they continue not to be today. They also benefit from a strong civil society. They have several axes within their civil society, which have always played for a long time, for decades now, a strong role in uh, guiding policymaking, so including the trade union movement. That was also very important. What was also very different in Tunisia in comparison to Egypt is that the electoral results were also very different. A lot of people attribute another's behavior, which was conciliatory, at least from the outside, and certainly a lot more conciliatory than the Muslim Brotherhood's behavior in Egypt. The Nahda Party, of course, is uh, Tunisia's moderate Islamist party, led by Rashid Ghanoushi, an Islamic scholar uh, who spent many years in the UK. And many people attribute that, that, that the difference in behavior between Nahda in Tunisia and the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt to the leadership of Nahda. The idea being that Ghanoushi was someone who was uh, capable of reaching out to the other side, wanted to reach out to the other side, was a wise person who was capable of entering into compromise, so on and so forth. That may be true, I don't know. But the truth of the matter is also that in Tunisia, Ghanoushi and Nahda would never have been able to impose their will in the way that the Muslim Brotherhood was able to or tried to here in, in Egypt. The reason why is because in Tunisia they got 37% of the vote. They were a minority, a clear minority, even if they were the largest party. All the opposition parties were non-Islamists, all of them. So even if they were broken up into several different small parties, 
Another never had a majority in terms of pushing through its Islamist agenda in Parliament. And that created a huge hurdle that they were never able to overcome. If they had gotten the Islamist forces in Tunisia, had gotten the 77% of Parliament that the Islamist forces in Egypt did, I think that their behavior would have changed. One of the countries that sort of overlooked in the Arab Spring was uh, Morocco. Morocco also had a uh, sort of uprising. It was a very peaceful uprising. The government granted the protesters permits. And the king there, Mohammed VI, instituted a process of reform in response to that protest movement, which was called the February 20th movement. What do you think about Morocco's efforts at constitutional and legal reform since the Arab Spring? People like me, people who are interested in constitutional reform, generally put Morocco in the same category as Jordan. So Jordan also had a relatively peaceful protest movement in 2011, at least a lot more peaceful than in other countries uh, relative to them. And they also quickly allowed for constitutional reform. So the two countries are usually put into the same category by comparative constitutional analysts. And what was generally said about Morocco is that Morocco's process for reform of the constitution was not particularly convincing, not particularly democratic. It was all over within a few weeks, basically. So they decided very quickly that they would amend their constitution. The drafting process lasted for a few weeks, and then a couple of weeks later they had the referendum and it was all over. Whereas in most modern democratic settings, when you decide to draft a new constitution, which is what Morocco did, it didn't just amend its previous constitution, that usually takes years, not weeks, you know, certainly at least months, you know, at least a year, or, but, but easily years. So uh, South Africa is always the example that people give of a good constitutional process, in South Africa, it took seven years to draft their constitution from 1990 all the way to 1997, all in all. So in Morocco, the process itself was not particularly convincing. And then the referendum results also point to a not very convincing result. I'm not questioning the, the validity of the results. I'm just saying that it's, it's just not particularly convincing as to whether or not people had the time to really judge whether or not the constitutional reforms were in their favor or not. I can't remember exactly what the proportion of people was that voted in favor of the text but it was something like 97% of people voted in favor. That type of level of consensus just doesn't exist in, a, in, a, in anywhere. You don't have 97% of any country that is completely convinced about all constitutional reforms that this doesn't happen. So the fact that in Morocco that that's the result that people got is more reflective of a sign of confidence in the general willingness to enter into reform as opposed to a level of acceptance on the details of what is actually in the text. And that's what's really problematic, is that not enough thought can go into reforms in just a few weeks. It's just not something that can be done, whether by scholars or by the general population. And today, when you speak to people in Morocco, once again, comparative constitutional scholars, Moroccan or otherwise, and you ask them whether or not they're satisfied, you have generally two narratives. One narrative is that they're generally satisfied with the way things are going, but they consider that the passing of key legislation is very, very slow. And there are a lot of questions as to why it needs to be so slow. And that points to a problem which is that things may not have changed that much, because that was always a problem under the previous constitutional system. And the second narrative is that things haven't changed. There may be a new constitutional framework, there may be a new system, more or less, but real political power still resides in the hands of the monarch and the people that surround him. And in that type of context, people feel a little bit frustrated that the reforms may not have changed much. Having said that, I think it's fair to recognize that Morocco is one of the few countries in the region where people are more or less free to say what it is, what they want, more or less. Of course, there are restrictions, but you can organize meetings and conferences in Morocco about just about anything, even 
constitutional reform in Morocco, and people will not interfere. There are some things that are out of bounds, of course. You still can't insult the police and that type of thing, right? And a lot of people complain about that bitterly. But nevertheless, freedom of expression in Morocco is practically at the same level as it is in Tunisia and Lebanon, which are basically the freest countries in terms of expression in the region. And that's something that's worth noting. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Iraq and Syria, and I guess we can throw Yemen in there as well, countries that have suffered perhaps the most from the Arab Spring uprisings and their consequences. These countries are not faring well. Iraq is being torn apart. Syria is a, it's been described as the worst uh, humanitarian disaster right now since World War II. And Yemen, too, is mired in a very complex conflict now. What is the point of talking about constitution or rule of law in these countries at this point? Well, there's a whole body of thought about whether or not constitutions can act as peace treaties, or whether they're at least a subset of peace treaties. My angle on this type of thing is uh, Iraq is being torn apart by all sorts of very negative uh, elements, Daesh included. Daesh being the Arab acronym for the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, the Al-Qaeda offshoot led by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. But the, if you look at Iraq principally, right, I mean Iraq is very different to Yemen, we'll talk about Yemen in a, in a second. If you look at Iraq specifically, this problem with ISIS now has been brewing for a while. We had from people who followed Iraq closely will know that from around about mid-2007 to around about 2012, there was a relative state of normality in the country. Things were more or less safe around the country. I mean, you've been to Iraq many times, and you were probably there during that period on lots of occasions. It was relatively safe. People could go about their business, and things were more or less fine at the time. It was during that period that things started going sour. Uh, during that period, there was no accountability of the police's actions, no accountability over the courts, no accountability over the army. All three were doing a terrible job at keeping uh, security systems safe in the country. The government had a terrible security policy. There were all sorts of really gaping holes in its security framework that groups like ISIS were able to exploit. But if you look at things from a constitutional rule of law perspective, the constitution of the rule of law is designed to achieve different things. One is to give the individual rights so that the individual's rights are respected by the state, by the whole institutional structure that makes up the state, particularly the courts, the government, and so on and so forth, right? but also to ensure that the individual feels that they're part of something that's worth protecting. So if you live in a country where you're safe and you have a decent income, where the state and your society look after each other, you feel that there's, you're part of something that's worth protecting. Now, in Iraq, we had a very poor constitutional structure that had very weak mechanisms to control the judiciary or to hold it accountable for its failures, almost no accountability mechanisms in the constitution to control the military and none to control the police. And for years and years, from 2003 all the way to today, and it hasn't been reformed yet, there is no rule of law in Iraq. You can still, to this day, be arrested for absolutely no reason and never be charged with a crime, be tortured for days and weeks and months, never be brought before a judge. Your family will never know where you're being kept. And the only way you'll ever be released is if you pay a massive bribe that can be of up to $100,000 to get out so that the prison guards will release you from the jail. Even if you have a court order, an order from a judge, saying that you're innocent, the only way that you'll get out is if you pay a bribe to the prison officials. That type of system is one of the factors that led to the establishment of, or to the success of ISIS, is that the security establishment not being held accountable for its actions was allowed to torture, to mismanage, to be inept for years. 
It's not just the fact that they were torturing. You can torture but still run an effective security state. But they weren't even able to achieve that. For years and years, as people know, the Iraqi military and the security services have been using bogus equipment to keep Baghdad safe, quote-unquote, from car bombs. You're talking about these little golf ball detectors that the Iraqi government paid some British charlatan millions and tens of millions of dollars for that are now still used in the street despite being proven frauds. Sure. Now, if Iraq had a decent anti-corruption framework that was incorporated into its constitution, those things would never have made it to the streets of Baghdad. Or, if they had made it to the streets of Baghdad, then they would have been able to be withdrawn by the courts and by the investigatory forces in the country, despite the government's insistence that they should be kept in. But because we have no such thing, because of our, our state institutions are so weak, the politicians were able to exploit all the gaps in our constitutional framework. So in that type of context, where you have very poor quality politicians like we do in Iraq, corrupt, inept politicians, and I allow myself to speak in this way about Iraq, which of course it's my country, so I feel very involved. The purpose of a constitution is so that you can try to control their behavior. It's a tool amongst others to control their behavior in very difficult circumstances. Of course, it can't succeed on its own, and sometimes it can only be partially successful, but you do need rules to guide politicians. In a complete absence of rules, they'll do whatever it is that they want. Where there are good, well-drafted rules, the politicians will have to try to find a way to navigate around the rules in order to steal, in order to be inept, in order to carry out the type of business that they, that they want to, right? But sometimes they won't be able to exploit any gaps because there won't be. So well-drafted rules are there in order to protect people from corrupt and inept politicians. That's what they're there for. In a country like Yemen, things were very different because up until around about a year ago, so even if we even go slightly further back in time, in 2011 when the uprising started, the country was on the brink of civil war for a period of time. When the agreement on the transition process was signed, all the different political forces and tribal forces and people that were armed decided to calm down and allow sufficient time for the transition process to deliver. This was the transition process that saw the eventual ouster of longtime President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been uh, ruling uh, the country in some way or another for decades. That's right. So when the agreement was signed, everyone de-escalated. So eventually militias and tribal forces and so on and so forth, they put down their weapons or they went back home. And for a period of years, something like three years, the capital was relatively normal. There was still a lot of instability in various places, sometimes even including in the capital, but it was relatively normal. There certainly wasn't any large-scale fighting. Now, over time, things started deteriorating. So the question is whether or not, if the transition process had finished early enough and a new constitution had been agreed, for example, a year ago, whether or not that would have made any difference. Because they've been working on their new constitution for some time. And up until now, Yemen's constitutional drafting process, the process for reform, was the most innovative, most imaginative, and perhaps even the most convincing of all the Arab Spring countries. They had a system that was completely different to anything that was done anywhere else in the Arab region, that was separate from elections. They had a, a great national dialogue process, which led to you know, a very serious agreement on all sorts of different issues. And that was supposed to feed into the drafting of a new constitution. Now, the process itself was relatively well designed. The problem was, in terms of implementation and the details, it just took a long time to get anything done. When the drafting process started early on, for months there was almost no progress. 
Today, as we're reaching, the full draft of the constitution was actually published just a few days ago. And now the Houthis have taken over, or are trying to take over, the capital right now. So the question is, if the draft constitution had been finished when it was originally supposed to have been finished, a year ago, at the end of 2013, and not at the beginning of 2015, whether or not that would have made any difference, and we'll never know at this stage. The Houthis are the Iran and Hezbollah-inspired militia that is rooted in the country's Zaidi Shia offshoot minority and that has made a military attack and a siege, really, on the capital. The Zaydis have also historically, over the centuries, been part of the ruling caste. just wanted to briefly touch on the Gulf states, uh, you know, they were kind of overlooked, but you know, a lot of people live in those Gulf states and they're increasingly politically important, internationally important, internationally influential. Maybe they don't get enough scrutiny or the type of scrutiny that they should get for the benefit of their own people. Do you see any bright spots where there has been any kind of meaningful reform? Not really. I mean, when the Arab started, there was, um, there was a lot of action in, in Bahrain, of course, and there was also some movement in Oman. But in both cases, it hasn't really materialized into anything, any concrete improvements. I mean, it's still governed more or less in the way that it has been, that region, over the past few decades. Kuwait, as you know, is an exception to the rest of that sub-region because it has an elected parliament. But then again, there's been an important crackdown on, on expression now in Kuwait. People, opponents of the, of the current ruling authorities, have had their nationality withdrawn. You know, it's, it's not people that have been granted nationality recently. It's people that have no other nationality than Kuwaiti nationality. They're being rendered stateless as a punishment for criticizing the ruling authorities. So it's not particularly hopeful. But then again, you know, given that I was trying to be fair to Morocco earlier, you know, it's important to note that at least in the Gulf, people have a relative stability. It's, very, it's a very stable region. Bahrain, of course, is a very notable exception. But in the rest of the countries, people live safely and have a high income and you know, high standards of living. It's something that's worth noting, even though obviously it could be a lot more democratic than it is currently and, that, and would, would therefore be a lot more fair. UAE does seem like the kind of place where if I was arrested, I would be charged with a crime and I would be brought before a judge. Maybe it wouldn't be a fair trial, but my family would be able to find me and I wouldn't have to pay a bribe to get out of prison. Why are they able to have a rule of law on the simple basis that other countries don't have? There are different historic reasons as to how the UAE developed as a country, right? So it only achieved independence in the 1970s. And it was very, very gradual. They rely very heavily on a cast of foreign advisors to help them in their work. And also they benefit very heavily from very high income from their oil resources. And they've decided you know, to invest that relatively wisely, at least in terms of their own national infrastructure. And then something else is that they don't really have huge security threats. So all those, those are important factors. But having said that, you know, what you say is true. But the, the opposite, the flip side of that, is that you can be, if you're arrested, then you'll be charged with a crime. But the law that you have been accused of violating may be extremely unfair. It may have been drafted or is likely to have been drafted purely in order to satisfy the interests of a very small minority of people that live in that country, that live or even that are nationals of that country, because it's not a democratic system. So, you know, the policy formation mechanism still is very, very questionable in that country. So you'll be charged with a crime, you'll be brought before a judge, your family will be able to find you, true. But that doesn't mean that you live in a fair, equal society, far from it. Libya is uh, one of my favorite countries to cover, just because I've been following it so closely since the beginning of the revolution, since even before the revolution in 2011. 
things were so hopeful in Libya. There was such a spirit of goodwill once longtime ruler Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown. And now Libya is turning into just an, another ferociously failed state. I know you've worked on the, the Libyan issue, the Libyan transition. What can be done at this point to salvage the Libyan experiment? What needs to be done in order to salvage things is that, first of all, they need to understand what went wrong, why things went wrong so badly. And the second thing that they need to do is that they need to develop a convincing plan for the remainder of their transition that everyone needs to sign off on. It needs to be convincing because uh, if people aren't convinced by it, then they won't, they won't follow it. And that's been the problem from the start in Libya, is that the transition plan was the most inept of all the countries. It was uh, designed in a very, very uh, confusing way and uh, very unconvincing and not taking into account the particularities of Libya's context. And what I mean when I say that is that Libya is the country in the region that had the least in terms of stable, functioning state institutions. Right? Had a very vibrant civil society, strong lawyers and so on and so forth. In terms of state institutions, it was very, very weak, practically non-existent. And yet, in that context, a decision was made to rely very heavily on electoral results and to rely solely on the results of the low elections to determine how all the processes would work. Conversely, a country like Yemen, which has relatively stable institutions in its capital, decided not to have any elections. From 2011 all the way to today, the only election that took place in Yemen was a referendum on the current vice president of the country, where he was the only candidate. They didn't have any constituent assembly elections, no parliamentary elections, nothing of the sort. Whereas in Libya, they've had three rounds of elections. And if you look at even the design of those elections, one of them was organized on the basis of first-past-the-post. Which is a disastrous model. That means that, essentially, if you have... 20 candidates running, and the top candidate gets 9% of the vote, and the rest of the vote is split among the others. Uh, there's no second round. That guy who got 9% of the vote wins the uh, election, which is a very strange uh, uh, model to use. It's the model that's used in the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom, as everyone knows, is the oldest or amongst the oldest. They say that they're the oldest democracy in the world. But it's controversial in the United Kingdom. You know, there's been a huge push to have it amended or reformed in the United Kingdom. A lot of people are trying to get it changed, but the political class resists. In Libya, a country that has no democratic experience whatsoever, the idea that first-past-the-post wouldn't create some type of problem is ridiculous. You know, A lot of people saw the plans at the time, including some of my colleagues, to have an, or, an election organized on the basis of first-past-the-post, and they went bonkers. They couldn't believe what was being planned. And yet, nevertheless, that's what happened. And when you do something like that, what ends up happening, as you rightly point out, is that a huge majority of the votes that are cast are wasted. People don't feel connected to the body that's elected. Like 80, 70% of people who vote don't have any representatives in the body that's elected. In a country like Libya that doesn't have legitimate, strong state institutions, that's a recipe for disaster. People need to learn the lessons of what went wrong over the past four years, and they need to design a really strong, convincing plan to move forward and get all the major actors to sign off on it. You know, without that type of, uh, that type of action, it's going, to be, it's going to be a long-term disaster. And in order to get people to sign off on it, they really need to understand that they have an incentive to do so. So how do you incentivize them? That's something that politicians need to figure out. That's not going to be easy. I just wanted to ask you a, a kind of a broad question. 
everyone talks about a crisis of legitimacy in the Arab world. They talk about one in the Muslim world as well, but the Muslim world is so broad if you include Malaysia and Indonesia. They have such different dynamics and, and histories. So let's just stick to the Arab world, this crisis of legitimacy. How do these countries move forward? The reason why the state isn't legitimate is because they haven't been treating the states and the politicians around the region, haven't been treating people with any form of dignity and respect. And when I say that, what I mean is that citizens are treated as if they have absolutely no rights. There's no concept of citizenship, there's no concept of rule of law. People can be arrested at anyone's whim and treated in any way, regardless of what it is that the law says. You know, sometimes even the law will make it, will make it possible. So when that's dealt with, when the rule of law is dealt with, debates in relation to national identity remain important, but don't take in the, in the violent context. As soon as people are treated violently by the state, or their rights are violently oppressed, then people will debate issues of identity in a violent way as well. That's not something that's exclusive to the Arab region. It's something that exists in all parts of the world. Our particularity in the Arab world is that, to this day, our political class, from east all the way to west, hasn't been held to account for its massive failure over the past 70 years, the post-independence political class. The debate about sectarianism in Iraq, about tribalism in Libya, about sectarianism in Lebanon, so on and so forth, is reversing the debate. What it's doing is that it's essentially saying that the reason why these societies can't organize themselves is because of the people. The people are sectarian. The people are tribal. The people are not developed, etc., etc. Whereas I place all blame not on the people, but on the politicians who seek to oppress them. The politicians who, for the past 70 years, haven't been entering into the types of reforms, haven't been doing a serious job of building state institutions. If you look at the pace of reform, it's so uninspiring. All the missed opportunities to reform, to modernize, it just doesn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't happen, and it's coupled with violence. Sometimes it's peaceful, but also doesn't happen. And in the end, these people will be made to account. They can't expect to continue with their current level of behavior, their current standard of behavior, and for people to just accept that over the long run. So it's in their interest, the political class, to start performing their own behavior rather than, be, than blaming the people for the failures that have been taking place in this, in this region. It's interesting to mention Lebanon. We haven't talked about it so far. But in a way, that's sort of the perfect example of people who are utter and total failures continuing to retain their hold on the political apparatus. When you speak to a lot of the political class or intelligentsia in Lebanon, and you tell them that uh, you know, the political system needs to change and ethno-sectarianism needs to fall away, or at least be, uh, be amended or reformed to make it more democratic. Or at least some fresh faces. Some fresh faces. The response that you invariably get in Lebanon, and the same in Iraq, is, ah, but the people aren't ready for it. People need to be educated. They need to understand that they shouldn't vote according to ethno-sectarianism. Otherwise, even if you pass different rules, they're going to vote along ethno-sectarian lines anyway. That, once again, is blaming the victims. When you take any random Lebanese citizen and you plant them in Canada, suddenly you find that they're model citizens. You know, they know exactly how to behave when rules make sense. But when the rules don't make sense, then they'll behave according to the rules that exist around them. That's something that, you know, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And that's true in Lebanon, it's true in Iraq, it's true everywhere. We always have this tendency to blame the citizen, to blame the victim, rather than to blame the political class for everything that's happening. Now, a response that often comes afterwards is, ah, well... There are elections. So if the politicians are so corrupt and if they're so incompetent and so selfish, why don't people just vote them out? The response to that is that the rules are rigged in their favor. We have no options. Our options in Iraq and our options in Lebanon 
aren't to vote for a completely separate group of politicians. We can only vote for the existing set of politicians. So some politicians will see their favors increase somewhat, some will see them decline somewhat, but it's always going to be the same faces because the rules are rigged in their favor. Newcomers are not welcome. I want to thank you so much, uh, Zaid Al-Ali, advisor on constitutional and uh, legal affairs for IDEA, a uh, UN-affiliated intergovernmental organization. Zaid is emerging right now as one of the foremost uh, experts and scholars on uh, constitutionality and rule of law in the Arab world. Thank you so much. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.